All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Jim Hebner. Jim is founder and CEO of Hebner Integrated Marketing, a 33-year-old firm dedicated to helping companies become more relevant to their customers and more profitable in the process. From the world's leading recreational vehicle manufacturers and emergency vehicle manufacturers to specialty baked goods and high-end power equipment makers, the firm has guided dozens of companies to more meaningful positioning, messaging, and relevancy since 1989. He recently published his first book, The Irrelevant Old Brand, which is about why businesses fail and how to avoid becoming irrelevant. So Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. So share with us a little bit about your background. I know you have a pretty extensive manufacturing background, but how did you get to do what doing what you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. I always wanted to have my own business. Discovered in college that marketing was going to be it. And, and so I had some marketing positions before I started my agency in 1989. And about six years into it, we were working with a lot of local clients and banks and doctor's offices and insurance companies, but they're all local. And, uh, but we had a large manufacturer in our town and I got an opportunity to do some work for them. And they owned one of their divisions was an RV recreation vehicle division. And uh, pretty fun doing marketing for a company that in a vertical market that was selling products all over the country, even around the world, as opposed to just doing some local things. So that was fun for us and more challenging, more exciting. And so we ended up really late nineties, just focusing on manufacturers who were, who again, were in vertical markets, selling their products all around the world. And that's pretty much all we've done since then. And yeah, that's kind of how we landed in, in manufacturing. Almost all of our clients are manufacturers of some kind of product and they all have basically the same kind of needs. And that's just to understand how they're most relevant in their marketplace, how they can be more relevant in their marketplace. And we help guide them through that and then help them communicate that to the world. So what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that manufacturers make when it comes to their brand? Yeah. And I don't want to overuse the word relevance too much, but I do think everything in my book is there's some kind of connection somewhere. They're not all the same industries and things, but they are from a lot of our real life stories. But a lot of times manufacturers will find is they got a good foothold in the marketplace with a great product. Over time, needs change, society changes. There's just all sorts of change. And unless there's this intentional methodology to determining how relevant you're staying or remaining in that marketplace, they just tend to drift a little bit. Sometimes it ends up just being a messaging issue. They're just saying the wrong things about themselves. They're just not focusing on what is most meaningful and relevant to their customers. And, and so that's honestly, that's more of an easier fix than sometimes when a product becomes completely irrelevant. Think Blockbuster, or there's lots of situations where our society just changes so much that product is no longer even relevant. But I think that's 
what tends to happen. They just lose sight sometimes of what their message should be or, or how their product, there's some, maybe some kind of innovation with their type of product that they missed out on. And uh, they sometimes need to retool and sometimes need to figure out what else they could be doing differently. That's more meaningful and relevant to the customers. So what would be some signs that maybe they need to address relevancy? How would they know that maybe they have some updating to do? Yeah. So in the book, we outline our process and there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat. I think our process is certainly the way we do it. And we recognize there's lots of different ways to do it. We just start by doing some research and having a lot of conversations and a lot of surveys and things that are going out to find out why are those customers doing business with us in the first place? And why don't they do business with us? How critical are you to their success? Which means how important is it that you're selling them what you have for their own success? Because a lot of times if you're just a commodity, that can be a huge challenge. If you're just a commodity and you haven't found a way to differentiate, wrote an article once on, I can't remember what the title of the article was, but it basically it was how to not sell on price. And that was to not sell on price, you need to not be a commodity. And uh, I remember a CEO of one of our clients called me in because he wanted to talk about just, I feel like we're getting commoditized. What do we do about it? And that's really where something like a relevancy report comes into play because the relevancy report, our goal is to uncover where those opportunities are. Where can we be more meaningful, more important to our clients? And it's not always just about the product. Sometimes it's just about the way the service is delivered or the product is delivered or the relationships. We had a client in uh, the manufacturing space and they, in fact, I talk about a client similar to them in the book that sells, they manufacture uh, self-storage units. So it's all the pre-engineered still packaged together and delivered for the contractor to then put up as a self-storage unit. And one of the things they found over time was, or through our research, was those contractors weren't doing business with them because their steel was better, because their delivery was better, because all the traditional things, because it was more fade resistant or whatever, it didn't have anything to do with the product. It had 100% to do with the people. It was because they built great relationships with them and they hired salespeople who were great relationship builders. And so those contractors knew that they had their back and that in thick and thin, no matter how tough times were, this particular manufacturer was going to have their back. I remember one time there was a, an employee of that company that I went to church with and saw him at church one morning. And I said, what'd you do this weekend? And he goes, oh, I was sleeping all day yesterday, Saturday, Thursday night. We got a request from one of our contractors. He needed a bid out by Friday morning. And the only way I was going to be able to do that was pulling all nighter. And so I got it done like at seven in the morning, went home and showered and came back to work for the rest of the day. And I just thought, so that's why they say that they do business with you because of your relationships, because people are doing that kind of stuff. They're, right. they're pulling all nighters to meet the needs of the customer. And that's, so for them, that's how they were so incredibly relevant to those contractors was because they had their back all the time. So it's not always about, oh, we have the best quality product. Sometimes it can be just the way you do business. So getting back to your original question, that process is you need to ask, you need to do the research and find out. And that's sometimes honestly sounds selfish of me, but it's best to do a third party, I think. It, it's best to have somebody from the outside ask these questions of your customers because customers are 
oftentimes they don't want to be uncomfortable or make it awkward in their relationship with you. So they'll just tell you what they want to hear as opposed to right. a third party. They're like, I don't anything. They don't know who I am. So I'm just going to let them, you know, tell them what I really think. But it's finding those things out, finding out what they think you don't do so well and finding those differing opinions about the brand. Some people might think back to that one manufacturer I just mentioned, some of the people internally thought they were doing business with them because they had this special e-coded steel. And that's why people were buying the product. And other people recognized, now nah, it's probably our relationships, but it's just that process of trying to uncover all these differentiating factors. And then what we call value indexing those and saying, okay, here's all the differentiating factors about our company, our brand, our products, which of these is most valuable? So which of these is the most meaningful, makes us the must have, the one we've got to do business with? Because all things aren't equal. All differentiators aren't equal. You can have, it's just like the steel, you can have a certain kind of steel or a certain kind of a treatment that you put on any kind of product and certain screws that you use or whatever it is, but that might not be that valuable in the eyes of the, the customer. You have to get to the bottom of what is most valuable and what's most meaningful to them. And that's what we really want to hang our hat on. Not that the other things are ones that you ignore. You still mention those and use those in your messaging and in your conversations and marketing. And But as far as how you're going to separate yourself from the rest, it's got to be that one that is most valuable, most meaningful. How would a manufacturer decide who to connect you with? Do they just hand you their customer list and you go to town or do you call other people in the industries who are potential customers to find out like their reputation of why maybe they don't buy for them? What does that yep. process look like to even get started? Yeah, generally they'll, they'll give us their list of customers, non-customers, people they've been trying to get as customers. Sometimes, depending on the relationships, we've been able to talk to their competitors. A really good resource are other uh, vendors in the industry. Sometimes you can get what their true perceptions are of the brand you're working with from those other vendors. They'll say, yeah, those are the guys everybody likes to do business with. Well, why is that? And they'll extrapolate on that. But our four steps that or the four kind of ways we go about doing the research is we do interviews with key personnel. That's pretty important. And honestly, what I always say, and I this is just a gut number, I haven't actually measured this, but I think probably 80% of the things we find out, they already know. It's that extra 10 or 20% that is like, oh, wow, people perceive us this way, or they think this about our product or they, that's where all the value is. And so you find that out. You don't necessarily find that out with the key internal personnel so much. That's where you find the baseline. But then we also do interviews with key customers and those will either be in person or a Zoom call. We'll do interviews with other key stakeholders. And that could be anybody from their attorney or insurance people to anybody else that's associated or connected to the brand. And, and again, that's where the vendors, other vendors would come in. That's in the book. I give an example of a vendor that works in that same industry and he gives some great insight to the main character in the book. And then we'll do a broader swap with, of email surveys and those kind of things to get where it's, they're rating certain things to give us a general feel, but it's really the specific comments. I'll be honest, the specific comments that, that people will make in these interviews that really ends up shedding the light on where they truly where their true opportunity is and sometimes they're nailing it it might just be a slight messaging issue other times again they might be completely missing it 
and need to refocus on, on some certain thing that they're doing instead of what they have been doing. So what would be an example of a big aha when you were working with manufacturing and you were presenting them with the market survey that you found, like you said, that they that 80% of the time they know it of yeah. what's going on or they realize it. But what would be some examples of some ahas that the manufacturer did not know that's how they were perceived? or And it could be something that they were doing well or something that they were doing poorly. Yeah. I think one of the examples is actually the one I, the book is about, and it's somebody that's in, they make a product that is used in underwater sea exploration and in anywhere where there's high pressure and a harsh environment, basically. And so they'd gone through 30 years of success, maybe even 40 years of success selling these products, but they started getting beat up on price by some knockoffs and those kind of things. And so we went in and did this study. And what we found out was they were trying to compete on the, a lot of the low end stuff. And it's, that's not your bread and butter. That's not why people right. buy your product. And it all came down to one conversation with one engineer. This really happened. And that engineer said, you got to understand when I'm putting one of these units on a, robot that's going to be skimming the ocean floor, the last thing I'm going to be worried about is that I spent five extra bucks on the most dependable product on the market because I have too much to lose. I have a million dollar robot down there. I'm not going to screw around with a, some product that's untested or I don't know how dependable it is when this one is 40 years of never failing ever. Mm. So that was like, that was the light. It was like, okay, so we've been sitting here talking about quality all along. The problem with the word quality is everybody says it. Every, right. It's a completely subjective term. What is, what's quality? For, in their case, the quality, yeah, it wasn't that it was, it didn't lack, it didn't have quality. It, it was high quality, but it was the dependability that was the word. That was the, and that was, and as simple as that seems, I'm telling you, after doing this for 30 years, People get so close to it. I'm the same way in my own business. I, I get so close to things, I can't even see it. And that's the beauty of bringing in outsiders, as mm -hmm. you've probably heard it described, is you're, when you're on the inside of the bottle, you can't describe what the outside of the bottle looks like. You kind of lose that. And, and I think for them to hear this engineer say is, wow, we got to focus on dependability. And then the beauty of that is, so all of a sudden, you're, it, it gives you this new lens of how how to look at HR and about and production and who you're buying some, your raw material from and all these things and ensuring that, okay, if we're going to be the most dependable product on the market, we've got to make sure that everybody we're doing business with and everybody internally is in line with that. And that is our, that's our battle cry. We're going to be more dependable than anybody else is. How do we do that? Then that particular manufacturer, they actually had a person that was, and this is the example that I talk about in the book, is they go through and they hand test every single piece that comes through off the line instead of batch testing. So why is their product more expensive? That kind of helps explain part of it, that they're hand individually testing each and every one that comes off the line as opposed to batch testing. And there's other reasons their price is higher. I'll be honest, a lot of it's because 
they're the most dependable on the market. So they can command a higher price. Right. So the end result is they can get rid of the bottom feeders, the people who just want the cheapest on the market. And they can say with great confidence, say, then you should go buy this one because <laughs> it's cheaper. One that's going to last forever. Then yeah, then you need to talk to us. So I don't know. Did that answer your question? Yeah, because okay. it, what reminded me of is there's so many times that people are chasing these bright, shiny objects because something just new came on the market where if you really stick to your core values and the reasons why customers do business with, with you, but taking that third party and getting the real information, because too many times we either make stuff up or we listen to people who are making stuff up yeah. versus having the actual information that, that counts. Yeah. Yeah. We have a GIVE acronym, G-I-V-E. E is Endless Quest. And that is, it's really, it's about keeping your finger on the pulse of how relevant you are. And that's just, it takes some work and it can take either somebody internally doing it or an outside firm doing it. But it, it is pretty important to ensure that periodically you're making sure that yes, our messaging is on track, our, our products are meeting the needs or exceeding the needs. Uh, and then, and then a constant evaluation of where are there greater, where are there more opportunities for us to become even more meaningful and more important to these customers that we sell to. So, what are the other three letters then? We okay. started at the end with E. So. Yeah, yeah. And I, that, 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 I tried to abate, but it did remind me of this quest. So, G is, and you can probably appreciate this. G is a grateful and generous. Is grateful and generous. It's interesting, but. I believe, and I've heard this before, gratitude is the attitude that sets the altitude for living. You have to start off by being grateful. To give, to pour out and be a giver instead of a taker, it has to start with gratitude. And it's interesting, I, as I was doing research in all of this, I came across a study by a University of Oregon, and I quoted it in the book. And it was a study done by a neuroscientist who they studied people who are just generally more grateful than the mainstream. And they found that as a result, and it's all chemistry related, as a result, people who are more grateful tend to be more generous. Yep. And I love, I always would have always thought that in my gut, but it was cool to come across an actual study that proved that was true. And I think I say a life that, or a brand that, that gives is a brand that lives. And what's it take for a brand to give? It's just like a life. A meaningful, relevant, important life is one that pours itself out, not one that just takes. So a brand is the same way. A brand has to give in some unique way that nobody else really is to really thrive. And But that starts with, you got to want to give. <laughs> you have to be, you have right. to have a generous, you have to have a kind of the sense or spirit of generosity. And then the second is, the I is inspired difference. It's not just about being different, but it's the reason I threw I that was give, but it's inspired because it's different in a meaningful and relevant way to that helps make you valuable to that customer that makes your product valuable to the customer. So it's not just about, like we were talking about before, it's not just about being different. It's about being different in a way that's meaningful and relevant and actually helps them get further down the path to success. So that's I, and then V is value exceeds price. And that kind of stems back a little bit to Warren Buffett's quote of price is what I pay, value is what I get. And honestly, I think the greater discrepancy there is between the value 
And the price, the more relevant or meaningful that product or service must be. And, and I think the example I use in the book there is Ace Hardware. So with Walmart and Home Depot and Lowe's and Menards for people who are in the Midwest, you look at that and you think textbooks would say, there's no way a store like Ace Hardware could survive. And I have some connections to Ace Hardware. My buddy owns five Ace Hardware stores or their family does. And, uh, and uh, so I have an affinity for Ace, but it's always dumbfounded me how well they thrive in that market. But it's because they're, the value of being able to go in and somebody tell you how to take the thingamajig and fix it with the doohickey, all of a sudden it separates them from everybody else. So you walk in the big box and maybe you'll find that person, but it's not guaranteed that you're going to find that person. And yes, YouTube helps, things have changed, but at the same time, there's just something about being able to ask that person, okay, so if I'm going to do this, is this what I would use? And they go, no, actually this, and that's, I'm not handy at all. And so I have to really depend on those people. And right. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone there just because I just want to know if I was doing this right. And I had no problem paying the extra buck or two or whatever it was to do that. And so ACE has created a, an environment where value, the value of going to ACE greatly exceeds the price because if it was all about price, they wouldn't be in business. Yeah. And it seems to me that with your acronym that fits into so beautifully for what I do with working with and speaking to my manufacturing audiences, sure. it's such a thing for workplace culture because you want to err on the side of generosity and inspired difference and value and endless quest with our customers. But if you can bring that same level of commitment and especially the generosity part of it to your employees yeah. that can be the difference because there's just too many people that they're afraid that if they give their employee an inch, they're going to take a mile. And they're so afraid of the getting jacked by the 3% of their employees who are going to take advantage of them, that they don't pay any attention to the 97% of employees who aren't. Yeah. So I th yeah. think that really fits beautifully. And I know that through this relevancy and going through this process, it seems that would have some impact on workplace culture. So what have you seen as far yeah. as the work you Yeah, we have a pretty small office, so I might not be the best example, but what I, I do know in general, just about people, as I mentioned before, I don't think I mentioned this actually, the original book I was writing was called The Irrelevant Old Man. And because I just, I'm in my fifties and once you hit your fifties, for those who aren't 50 yet, you just start thinking about not only, I wasn't so unclear about purpose, but I think what a lot of people wonder, at least I knew people my age that were wondering, has it mattered? Have I mattered? Has it mattered that I was here? Am I relevant? Was my life relevant? There's a great scene in, in uh, the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe. He comes in to, and I mentioned this in the book too, he comes in to Caesar's tents or dwelling and uh, they're having this conversation and caesar basically says i've conquered all this stuff i've won over all these lands and done all this and shed a lot of blood but in the end what have i given i've taken a lot and it, but what have i actually given and to the people and yeah and so i think that led me into this I, I was doing all this research on what creates a meaningful life and what makes someone life notate or convey more value more and I haven't thought through all of this part 
as much as I have the business part, but it's like a life that's meaningful is one that's, that pours out. So Billy Graham said, uh, said, we are not made, we are not, we were not made for, we were not made as cisterns for hoarding, but as channels for giving. And so that's what I found out, like listening to Viktor Frankl, psychotherapists, and listening to reading lots of different books by philosophers and theologians and things. What you realize is for a life to matter, it needs to give and not just take. And so I think add that one of the things we do in our office is there's a an event, a charity event that happens every year. And a lot of companies do this, but I think if you do it on on purpose and with this in mind, it makes it a lot more meaningful. It's called Feed My Starving Children. We go to this big event center and our team packs meals for a day for, for people all, ar- all around the world. And I think the more things you can do, you can challenge your team with how can we give, how can we pour ourselves out into the lives of others? The more meaningful, you, not only will it be in reality, but you'll feel it. You'll sense that. We were, like Billy Graham said, we are not made we are not cisterns for hoarding. We are channels for giving. I heard somebody else say, I think Andy Stanley said, would you rather be the plunger or the plunged? Would you rather be, would you rather be the bucket or, or the conduit that goes, that fills the bucket? And that goes back to a story. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book or not. Why is the Dead Sea dead? The Dead Sea is dead because water only flows into it. No water flows out of it. So everything that sits in it just ends up dying. And as a result, over the years, the saline content so high that nothing can live in it. And whereas if, if water flowed out of it, there would be this constant kind of cleansing or whatever. And I think that's symbolic of a life needs to pour out. And just like a brand needs to, in some way, give in a unique way, um, so does a life. So that's my next book. Okay. <laughs> Irrelevant old man. That's the next book I'm working on. I've already outlined it, so it, it's going to happen, but it might take a little while. As we start to get to the end of our time together, if you were thinking of one thing that somebody listening to this program can get started with as far as determining their relevancy or just starting that process before they even pick up the phone to call you, what does that look like? Yeah, I think they can go to our website, which is hebnermarketing.com. And I think there's some down, there's a download there. Let me check. It's supposed to be on there. I think it's uh, doing some of your own internal research is a definitely a good place to start. And some of those questions, again, I'll just run through our list that's in the book of what you want to find out. You want to find out why customers do business with you, why they don't do business with you, how critical you are to their success what they think you do well, what they think you don't do so well, differing opinions about your brand within each company you're surveying or interviewing, how the competition sells against you, what external influences might impact your success from politics to weather, how social changes might affect your brand, and what each audience perceives you are known for. And those are all super important things to really know and have, again, your finger on the pulse of to understand okay, if this is true, then how then does that affect how we sell, how we market ourselves, what we say about ourselves, what we want the end customers to believe about us, and then building out a roadmap or a path to, okay, how are we going to ensure that is in in fact what's happening and what people are believing about us? Yeah. And I think one thing too, that when companies are going through those questions, 
they have to be open to the answers, no matter what the answers is. I tell this to supervisors all the time. Don't ask a question that you don't really want the answer to. Don't fight it. Don't justify it. Don't do anything. Just have a thank you for sharing attitude and be yeah. okay with whatever you learn because whatever you learn is exactly what you were supposed to learn. Yeah, definitely. We had a, I'll never forget. We had a client once who said, you can do this study and all this. That's fine. He goes, but don't think I'm going to change anything. <laughs> so I, okay. All right, you dude, know. you're fired. I was the CEO, but yeah, you definitely, it starts at the top. The C-suite needs to be on board saying, no, this is important. We need to know how we're perceived. And if it's not the way we want to be perceived, what are we going to do about it? And what's the plan of doing something about it? Because, because if C-suite isn't interested in that, then I, that's fine. I get it. I say in the book, people have marketed themselves and wrongly marketed themselves for years and still been successful. It's right. just what we're all about is maximizing that potential. Um, and that happens through a process like we've been talking about, just really digging in and trying to find out some of those unanswered questions. So if somebody did want to continue the conversation and get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, through LinkedIn is probably easiest. And I'm in with that actual thing is it's just forward slash J.W. Huebner, H-U-E-B-N-E-R. Okay. Will that be in the sh in your notes or? Oh, yeah. Or, yep. Okay. Yeah. And then also my email is jimh at HuebnerMarketing.com. But yeah, LinkedIn, I'm on there every day. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you bet. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate what you're doing. Yes, it's important. Thanks. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.